This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. Every now and then, as a bit of a gimmick, someone comes along and tries to put a price tag on planet Earth. I mean, you have to have quite a bit of confidence in our market value to do such a thing. Who would buy us? Why? In 1997, Nature published The Value of the World's Ecosystem Services and Natural Capital, an analysis by Robert Costanza et al. that suggested the Earth's ecosystems varied in value between 16 and 54 trillion US dollars a year, with an average of 33 trillion. In 2023 dollars, that's the equivalent of 61 trillion. For contrast, the article's authors pinned global gross national product at around 18 trillion per year, although the World Bank disagreed with that estimate. Instead, it pins total gross domestic product, or GDP, at around 31.4 trillion in 1997. By that reckoning, our total human production, in terms of sheer financial exchanges, would have been more or less equal to the dollar tag placed on the whole of the natural world with all its wealth of wildlife and diverse ecosystems. $33 trillion in 1997 dollars is also a gross underestimate when compared with subsequent valuations of the Earth's value. Costanza et al. returned in 2014 with a new estimate published in Global Environmental Change under the article title, Changes in the Global Value of Ecosystem Services. You can hear the ongoing biases in that term, can't you? Ecosystem Services. Again, treating the world in terms of what it can do for us. Under this revised estimate, eco-services were said to be worth around 125 trillion a year in 2011 down from 145 trillion a year in 2007, but still around twice as valuable as total GDP. In 2020, the Climate Change Business Journal published an analysis putting the value of Earth at 30 quadrillion US dollars, and also clarified that its authors had reached the sum by treating nature as a different kind of infrastructure, in contrast to human-made variants, precisely to get people to care more about the impact of human activities in the natural world. This is part of a much larger project on the part of Environmental Business International and similar global bodies to talk about the environment in terms that investors will supposedly better understand. If the world is treated like an asset, the thinking goes, then maybe more financial types will care about any losses that our ecosystems incur. It's a depressing line of argument, no? And it also borders on incoherent when one looks at the figures these organizations are trying to use to highlight the loss in value. For instance, one line in the analysis calculates a $1.2 trillion loss in the value of our atmosphere as of 2020. But in contrast to what? To the original value of our atmosphere before modern human beings. This suggests that the very idea of financial value of a US dollar price tag preceding the existence of humans capable of making related trades. Another way of going about this kind of absurd calculus came to us with astrophysicist Greg Laughlin's five quadrillion US dollar estimate, which he acquired while developing a goofy calculation based on the 1803 Louisiana Purchase to try to figure out what the value of acquiring other Earth-like exoplanets might be. 
This was originally shared as a light-hearted blog post in 2009, but it was still taken somewhat seriously by others interested in quantifying the value of us and of trying to make sense of how precious this world we share really is. And these efforts are illuminating, but not in the ways originally intended. What such thought experiments and analyses tell us, really, is that our notion of value is still fiercely tied up in global economic systems as they currently stand, for better and much more often for worse. They also take for granted the idea that wealth for the planet as a whole is evenly distributed, that a loss in ecosystem value is felt equally across all populations, and that the benefits of this global price scheme are shared equally across humanity too. This absolutely is not the case, which is why a far more appropriate way of measuring value lies with looking at comparative wealth within our human species. After all, other animal and plant species don't give a hoot about the price tags we humans have placed on them. But those price tags still say everything about the state of our species itself. How we value human life, how we don't, and how we shape and sustain power within distinct subgroups by wielding these arbitrary financial notions of value over everyone else. And it's that mental flip that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. In 2021, Forbes magazine reported that overall human wealth had hit $431 trillion, with millionaires and billionaires controlling more than a quarter of that total, and 40% of the world's financial wealth in particular. This difference was exacerbated by the pandemic, in which the wealthy could afford to save their money and did so by putting more of it into high-yield investments that worked out favorably the moment the economy started to rebound after a global lockdown. The Credit Suisse Research Institute calculated an even higher total for global wealth in 2021, 463 trillion, and further noted that global median wealth had risen almost twice as fast as global wealth per adult also significantly outpacing global GDP. The U.S. continued to top the world in ultra-high net worth individuals, 140,000, well above China's second place ranking with 32,710. As for the bottom 50% of U.S. households, even their on-paper wealth 
seemed to increase from 1.8 to 2.64% of the total, if only because of surging real estate prices. As for the rest of the world, while this team of analysts suggests that the post-pandemic boom will pass, and that even though we can't yet ascertain the full impact of Russia's war on Ukraine, we'll undergo a period of slower growth or even full-on recession worldwide. In this upcoming state of affairs, increases in global wealth will continue, but most reliably only in middle-income countries. But what about the wealth that is inherent to us? Don't we as humans count for something in all this gamified mathematics too? In 1982, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, or OHSA, pitched the U.S. government a radical idea. Hey, we have all these chemicals that are extremely hazardous to human health. We should probably label them to reduce the risk of harm that they can cause if inappropriately handled. In fact, if we label these products, we can probably save around 4,750 lives. But the U.S. government, then under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, said essentially, hold up, how much are we talking about saving financially? And so it calculated the savings to human life under the idea that each of these 4,750 people was worth about 300,000 for a total of around 1.4 billion in 1982 currency, or around 4.4 billion today. However, the cost of printing all those labels was 2.6 billion, way more than 1.4 billion. So clearly, the administrative costs of prevention outweighed the human loss, right? But the OHSA appealed this decision to George H.W. Bush, the vice president at the time, who decided to get a technical expert on the job. He called Kip Biscusi and Kip an economics professor with a focus on risk in relation to life and health challenged the government's $300,000 price tag. Essentially, he argued that this figure failed to take into account the cost of risk that every person takes on when pursuing work in different fields. Under his calculations, the value of those 4,750 lives was actually $3 million apiece, or a little over $14 billion together. And because 14 billion is more than 2.6 billion, congratulations! The OHSA won the right to label hazardous materials and save lives. Problem solved, right? Well, no. Because even though that $3 million estimate continued to be used in future legal cases, it still didn't guarantee that the number of potential deaths from a given issue would surmount the costs of prevention. And worse still, litigious types in recent years have definitely continued to argue for different values for human life. In 2003, for instance, the Environmental Protection Agency under George W. Bush's government proposed deciding how much they would invest in clean air based in part on the view that people over the age of 70 were worth less, 37% less than everyone else. And since the population was definitely getting older, that shift in human price tag for elderly citizens would absolutely rack up state savings on prevention. But we also don't have to dive too deep into U.S. history to see examples of human life quantified and gamified in this manner. 
We also have the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 on to illustrate how our governments routinely play economic games when weighing prevention measures against abstract financial costs. And that's also where we get into the bigger issue for this mini-series, the value, or lack thereof, of human beings around the world. Because the topic of global financing is huge, we're not even going to scratch the surface with our little tour through the worst major players in finance today. And yet it also fundamentally matters that the systems we'll be exploring were by and large created within countries with very strong, litigiously driven ideas about the value of human life in general. So when we talk about financing the world, all the ways it works for fellow human beings, and all the ways it doesn't. What we're really talking about is the way that a few highly developed countries have chosen to set value not only on other parts of the world, but also on the myriad of ways in which we can choose to interact with other people in them. There is no altruism, in other words, behind even the most high-minded claims to want to bring the world to the same table through financial action. Companies might talk about global outreach and global uplift. They might present an eagerness to introduce new players to the international market to help locals combat regional prejudice and ignorance. But they are also making strategic choices based on cost-benefit analyses shaped by monetary notions of human value. They are attempting to generate more wealth than they will lose in their international work. Is there any other way to go about the work of global financing? Well, that's a question we're going to explore as well. But to get there, one of the critical ways of thinking that we need to dispel, the main aim, in other words, of thinking slow about global finance, is to help us disconnect ourselves from notions of human value and the worth of the world around us, from financial categories that are both highly arbitrary and also so thoroughly steeped in Western cultural discourse as to be inextricably linked to many other topics key to human thriving. As I've already noted, for instance, there is this striking idea in environmental business that one needs to talk about the planet using economic language in order to create a sense of value and with it a sense of urgency about worldly action for whole classes of human being. Is that the case though? Are some human beings simply born seeing everything around them in terms of assets, liabilities, investment options, and portfolios? Obviously not. And it's not even fair to say that this way of thinking is an inevitable result of litigious cultures either. In South America, for instance, legal practice has in recent decades incorporated the concept of buen vivir, good living, or living well which imagines an entire framework of legal concern dedicated to viewing human well-being as more a qualitative than a quantifiable good. Under this principle, our relationships with our environment have a legally recognized benefit without the need for specific price tags. The concept of buen vivir is rather a different way of seeing ourselves and our ecosystems and it invites us to remember that any technical quibbling about legal doctrine is meant to serve more abstract and lofty social principles, not the other way around.
As we move through these next five episodes, we're also going to see that while global financing has a lot of bad actors from powerful countries and organizations, nothing is ever so cut and dry when it comes to assigning blame for worldly suffering. Even as many international development and outreach projects are absolutely exploiting local communities instead of listening to and responding to stated needs, so too do those same local communities often manifest levels of oppression for which there are no quick fixes. A new global financing product, like the microloan or microbank, could very easily replicate old colonial oppressions in new forms. But it can simultaneously be true that its very existence still helps women and children gain local autonomy within abusive and prejudiced cultures. And as we'll also explore, Avoiding rigid binaries is especially key if we want to keep new forms of exploitative enterprise at bay. One critical aspect of the crypto economy, for instance, is a very legitimate body of criticism for the current state of global financing. Many cryptocurrencies have done very well in the short term and found significant favor in certain international economies precisely because they dangle a promise of escape from a current world order that isn't working for all. This is one of the most painful aspects of global financing, which we'll get into as well. The idea that many terrible alternatives have arisen from solid critiques of traditional enterprise, and that better options might be few and far between for now. That even if we can see all the problems currently before us, it will probably take years at best to build better models in their stead. One short-term solution, thankfully, is both clear and more immediately actionable. Tax billionaires. Tax excess wealth so that at the very least, a few overwhelmingly affluent individuals and corporations are no longer bypassing state and NGO apparatuses set up expressly to decide on best practices in the developing world. After that, well, then we're left with huge questions about how to redistribute wealth and how to create more equitable pathways to wealth creation around the globe. But perhaps most importantly, we're also left with the core question of this episode. What is the world worth anyway? Because if that answer is actually financial, we quickly run into a huge problem with respect to talk of equalizing human outcomes. Financial wealth, after all, is a relational quantity. One is wealthy compared to someone else, because one has more buying power than someone else. So if financial wealth is actually our aim when we talk about onboarding different populations to our global markets, then the world's doing pretty well right now, shoring up value for some individuals, which in turn raises the sum total of planetary wealth, even if most people will never directly benefit from its existence. And yet I'm fairly certain that we recognize wealth for wealth's sake as a fool's game. And one that right now especially is rushing us into ruinous outcomes for the true wealth that keeps our species kicking. Our environment, our world, the ecosystems that sustain us, our health and well-being going forward. So with that more complex array of human value points in mind, what should our actual aim be when we seek to finance the world? Is it simply to bring every human being into the same documented market? The same digital economy where value can be measured and redistributed with ease? Are there ever any circumstances in which a shared financial playing field, a uniform system of measuring monetary value, 
might work against other critical facets of human thriving. As ever, this miniseries is not intended to provide definite answers. The key is to estrange us from taking for granted that simply because current financial systems are ubiquitous, or feel that way, they are either working as well as they can be, or are somehow irreplaceable. It can certainly be difficult to imagine other ways of being and thinking when highly financially driven approaches to human value have been gamified around us all our lives, in the law, in relation to environmental protections, in conjunction with our personal value to the labor force, as in the world. But that's precisely why the exercise in thinking slow is so important. All of these terms and systems are not natural. They are human contrivances, not much different than all the arbitrary price tags that recent experts have slapped on our planet, our ecosystems, and on us. And just like ever so many financial products and gimmicks that have popped up and fallen away in recent years, such terms and systems will die off the moment we start to lose confidence in them. That's why, in episode two, we'll be taking a much closer look at why it's so hard to send money internationally and what such a fragile and unequal system of monetary exchange reveals not only about the world's financial priorities and major players, but also about political cracks in the whole model. Maybe we can't transform our systems overnight, but we can certainly chip away at the idea that any of them are functioning anywhere near as equitably as they could and should. Where we go from there, of course, will depend on how ready we are to imagine other and better ways of giving value to our world. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.